0: Good morning. So if you are a visitor, we glad you're here and visit us. um, We welcome you here. And um, there will be two announcements today. So first one is graduate luncheon. So graduate luncheon is for those of you who recently graduate or non-college student or will be graduate this summer. Um, So the purpose of that is we try to help you transitioning from focus to our church ministry, and that will be at the ranch, and lunch will be provided after church next week. Um, and that's basically you involved in our Shula team, whether or not community service or operation team. You will find out more there. Then, okay. Second is jam sign up. So jam is stand for our Jesus and me. Right now we only have Willow, which is our baby. <laughs> our church. Um, so. We start up slow, (laughs) and um, we need help to um, get the volunteer list started, and basically how that works is we will pair you up um, with other person, and y'all will be in the back playing with Willow for now. Um, So I will pass around the sign up, and um, there's uh, whether or not you are a college student or an adult, so just mark that. You'll see on the sheet. And lastly is the offering. So let me pray for offering, and then we'll get started. Dear Lord, um, thank you for um, your presence today, and just thank you that you gather us together and worship you and listen to your message. Um, I pray that you open our heart and open our mind and listen to your voice. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
1: Um, You know, I want to kind of challenge you guys to do something. Uh, Josh and I have had this feud for a long time over whether we should sing a song first or not sing a song first. My biggest problem with singing a song before announcements is everyone comes in here like they're at a funeral. And it's just sort of like half-hearted, you know, clapping and singing. And I understand that. It's kind of weird to go come straight into a building and just start singing songs. When else do we do anything like that other than maybe go to concerts, which we're generally more excited to attend. Um, so I want you, during this, this sermon series, as we uh, so, you know, start today, thinking about Romans, to really take an opportunity during the first whatever it is. I mean, I guess if it's announcements, maybe you... Ought Not to just ignore them, but uh, if we do a song at the beginning to take an opportunity to prepare your minds and hearts for worship of God uh, through what we do today. You're not here for a lesson. You're not here to see people uh, primarily that you haven't seen all week. We're primarily here to worship God and all of those other things, learning about the word Uh, encouraging people will come uh, from a heart that is in worship of God and His goodness. And as we talk about a lot of the things we're going to talk about in Romans, which is kind of like the constitution of faith for Christians, we ought to be looking throughout uh, for how we can worship God. Culmination of Romans comes in Romans 12, where it talks about using our bodies and our minds to worship God. And as a result of worshiping God, being transformed not as a result of learning a new thing or experiencing a new thing, but actually worship of God transforming our minds and our hearts. So will you do that with me? Yeah? This series? Let's try it a little bit different. Don't come in with the, you know, sad, you know, just sort of like... uh, uh, I'm drained, it's Sunday, it's cloudy. And I'm not necessarily meaning that you're like getting real expressive. I'm not a very expressive person, so it's not like I need you to be rowdy and fake it. But take an opportunity when you come in to really think through what am I worshiping today? Uh, uh, who am I worshiping and what am I worshiping about God? Okay, cool. we will remind you a couple of times too just so you get the hang of it. Uh, this isn't just sort of like the first thing that we can do to get movement around uh, so that we can, uh, you know, feel good about where we're at. This is really an opportunity to come in and really worship God, whatever that, uh, that means to you and however you feel led to do that. All right, so we are going to start our series today on Romans. The uh, sermon is, uh, uh, the series is Roman and American, Romans and American Politics. So this should be very, very exciting uh, this semester, these next 15 weeks. We have a number of people going to come and share. Uh, it's not going to just be me up here, which is really good. And uh, we want you to follow along. How many of you read Romans 1 this week? All right, good. What did you say? Will you add? Listen to it is great. Uh, yeah, that's right. I did recommend that you listen to it because Romans is pretty difficult uh, to understand. I also want to add something to that. If you do read it, you might want to read it in the message. Uh, I know that sounds really weird because we tend to think about the message as being like the th- least theological of the translations. And yet Romans is so difficult that sometimes uh, so much of the uh, analogies and the things that we are meant to understand kind of fall in deaf ears, and so reading the message can get you to think, get you to stop and pause and wonder, well, why did Eugene Peterson, uh, you know, uh, uh, bring this into it? Why did he interpret this this way? So I really want to encourage you to read through the message if you're going to read through Romans, because I think it will help you uh, at least initially be able to digest some of the really tough stuff that you're reading through. If you're one of those people who are like, yeah, I don't need that. I really want to study it study it from a theological vantage point. That's great. That's not what our sermon series is going to be for, although we'll do some of that. This is not primarily a theological sermon series. We are talking about politics, okay? American politics in particular. That is one of our aims. But if you do want to read it from a more theological standpoint, definitely if you read it through the NASB or NRSV, uh, it might help you uh, try to kind of grapple with some of the, uh, the more difficult words and texts and analogies and those kinds of things. All right? So Romans 1 in the message, uh, if you, uh, you know, just try, kind of gaining a foothold, trying to understand it or listen through it, or if you really want to attack it sort of from uh, this more theological standpoint, which is fine, but don't get too caught up in it, okay? Uh, then, uh, you yeah, know, read NASB or NRSV. Listen, Romans is really important. There's a reason that it comes after Acts in our Bibles. The folks who put together our scriptures saw it fit to include the Gospels at the beginning, which makes sense, Acts, which is a story of the church and how it came to be, and immediately after that, before any of the other uh, writings, Romans. Even though Romans came much later in terms of uh, its actual chronological date, all right? And it was one of the only churches that Paul hadn't visited before he wrote a letter to them. So Romans' placement in the New Testament should tell us just how important it is for Christians to understand it, all right? And we're gonna address it from one vantage point, which is politics this semester, but there's a lot you can do in trying to understand Romans. And as I've said a couple times before, this really is sort of like the, the, the constitution of faith, all right, sort of like the most... Paul gets close to systematic theology for Christians. What Christians have to uh, ultimately internalize, understand, and believe in order to truly be a Christian, a follower of Christ, set apart from the rest of the world religions, from Judaism initially. And so it's really super important that we think through these things. The assignment that I'm going to give you this morning, which you can go ahead and write down, and I'm going to give you some. um, our staff and elder meeting. We did this uh, last week. Uh, is to write down from your reading of Romans 1 through 4, and you're going to share these. In fact, I'm going to ask a few people to share these next week. Uh, write down in the most quick and concise way, in ways that, have, that don't use a lot of terminology that nobody understands or spiritual terminology, what are the most important theological statements that Paul is making in these chapters? So if you want to do that chapter by chapter, that's fine. If you want to do it by section, we talked about how Romans can be roughly divided up into Romans 1 to 4, 5 to 8, 9 to 12, and then everything following, you know, uh, 12. But the goal here is just to write down what you think are basic theological statements that all Christians should believe, sort of like a non-negotiable of faith, all right? And then I want you to share some of those. Again, as I said, Leslie will share some of those. I'll share some of those today. Don will share some of those, even though I'm just now remembering that I forgot to tell them when they would be sharing those. Uh, so we'll figure that out a little bit later. Let me give you an example from one of the ones that I wrote, and then you can ask questions if you've got any questions. So um, my, the first one that I wrote for this, and this was just, we, we did an assignment based on one through four. Righteousness is through faith, not identity, not the past, and not by adherence to any sort of, or a set of rules. Okay. Righteousness is through faith, not identity, not the past, and not by adherence to any sort of, uh, of rules. All right? So that's just one simple example that we want you guys to be doing as uh, we work through this sermon series, and we'll do a lot of things to get you to participate, but that's one. Questions about that, or you got it? Uh, which one, mine? No, you can't copy mine. That's so cheating. You're cheating. Hannah, don't cheat. You're gonna come next week, we're all going to forget, and you're going to read mine, and then it's like, you know... You'll get the credit for it, and I won't. So, righteousness is through faith, not identity, not the past, and not by any adherence to a set uh, of rules. I think I've literally read that three different times each time. That's how I work. All right? So, you're going to come up with your own theological statements. And so, while, again, our goal is not so much to to write all these theological statements down, uh, if you're really interested in the idea of building theology, I'll reference you back to our sermon series last year on building belief. A right reading of the scripture, that was a really great sermon series to think through. How do I develop theology uh, as a uh, a person, as a Christian? And what's interesting is a side note. We did a survey, which I want all of you to fill out, please, on our Facebook page. And we are toying around, and by we, I mean the senior staff of all the churches in our area, okay? Are toying around with the idea of doing a pastoral, what we're going to call cohort. I don't know why, just because it sounds cool and different than apprenticeship. Um, And the goal is to train up pastors uh, to be paid or unpaid staff in our churches. And so we've gotten a lot of great feedback from the 30 or 40 responses we've gotten so far. I want your feedback, all of you, because it doesn't matter whether you're interested in that or not. The major questions are, what do you think of our pastoral staff? What can we do better? What are some things that you really appreciate? What are some things that ought to go into these lessons, both practical and theological? And what's really interesting so far from the study is the top response is we want more theological training. And so maybe as a church, we don't spend a lot of time doing that. Maybe that's just something that everyone says they want to do more because they think it's spiritual to want to know theology. I don't know. But this will be a a helpful activity um, for our Roman series for you to come up with some of these theological statements. And again, take that survey. It'll take you like five minutes, okay? But maybe not right now, okay? Because we'll do some other things. So here we go. Romans 1, in the message. We're not going to read it. Don't have just a ton of time to do that. We're going to try to make these, uh, these sermons somewhat concise and short. Let me give a, a couple primers here, number one. Number one, uh, there's no way that you're going to agree with any th- that everything that we've, we're going to talk about. We've got a lot of people coming from a lot of different vantage points this semester. And anytime we talk about politics, I think one of the things that we get um, we jump to initially is this sort of anger or upset. Uh, uh, we're upset because someone's saying something that we think to not be true, okay? And that sort of threatens our identity, whether that's in faith, but even more so in politics, it seems. And so if you're one uh, of the people among us who gets very upset when people make a mistake or they say something you don't agree with, I'm gonna recommend you take our five-week class starting in March that Grant has coined the term How to Make Political Conversations a Little Less Terrible, all right? And That's going to be a five-week class starting in March, meets in the morning from uh, uh, 9.45 to 10.45, and we're going to address topics like how to really find common ground uh, and not assume things in conversations about politics, how to um, find reliable sources, what to do uh, once you, you do have some sort of direction in terms of what you understand, how do we pull in some of what The scripture actually talks about this, and I'm forgetting a couple of them, but the whole idea is how to have less terrible conversations about politics. And I'll tell you now, our sermon series is not going to be a negative sermon series where we all talk about how terrible the state of politics are in our country. Everybody already knows that. So it doesn't really take me getting up here and talking about politics is bad, no one likes it. We all know it's just not really going to be that useful. So what we're going to do instead is approach each of these topics specifically, and we are going to talk about a variety of things. We're going to start, hit the ground running this morning, talking about uh, sexuality, which we've already, again, covered in another sermon series. Race, which, again, we've covered in a whole other sermon series. But we're going to talk about really specific things in our country, the criminal justice system, human trafficking, uh, You know, some of these things that are just maybe issues you've not thought about, not heard about, maybe issues you've studied a lot about, but we're going to pull those conversations in with how can we learn how to really think about these issues from the perspective of Romans. And so if you have any topic that you don't see on our Facebook page that you really want us to address, just let us know. Let me, Leslie, Ryan, Austin, whoever, know that you want to address something or or want something to be talked about that's not already on our list. i give you guys the entire list, you know, like weeks ago for our series, so that you know what we're going to be talking about. And we're going to uh, very much try to balance out these topics uh, from a variety of of perspectives. Okay? So that's my uh, 10-minute introduction, which was way too long, but that's fine. So, Romans 1. I'm assuming many of you have read this. If you have not, then uh, some of these ideas are going to be really lost on you, Okay? And so I would encourage you, too, that if you haven't come and you haven't read Romans first, maybe just skip church and spend your time reading the chapter we're on. Because you'll get a whole lot more out of reading the chapter than you will listening to me talk about it. You may not think you will get more out of it, but you will. All right? So if you don't come prepared, maybe you should just get up, leave, and go into the parking lot in the cold and read Romans 1. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm just, okay. All right. So, We read through Romans, and one of the concepts that will become easily lost on us is the idea of law, okay? Many of us listen to this conversation about the law, and we think, we have no place in this. Let's skip over all this conversation about law, because it has no real basis in our life. Wrong. All humans, from the beginning, even in Adam and Eve, where there was one law, don't eat of that tree, that would have been nice. Uh, to have one law and one law only, one rule, have built law systems to protect themselves. And these law systems are, in the case of the Jewish people, direct given by God. But in our case, it's often uh, uh, an accumulation, a, um, uh, sort of an aggregation of a lot of just ideas from philosophers, from social activists, from uh, people in charge. We have laws, And so my main goal in, in this morning is to convince you that all of us live according to the law when we live apart from the Spirit of God. There is no such thing as not having for ourselves a law. And so anytime you read in the Scripture, Paul talking about the law, sure, immediately the Jewish people would have thought, okay, this means the law. But even they had ignored the law for their own religious and cultural law that they had kind of built up out of the old law system. Meaning they had sort of picked and choose, they picked and choose what they wanted from that law and then kind of changed it and they had for themselves their own law system. So I'm gonna talk about four this morning. Uh, Cultural law, which cultural and religious law in my mind are pretty similar. Natural law, legal law, okay? And then uh, the idea of the spirit uh, of God being a law for us. And so, uh, yeah, hopefully if you need me to stop, you can just tell me to stop and I'll answer questions and things like that. We're pretty participative around here and I get off on tangents and so it's good to bring me back. All right, so God's way is not law, okay? The law of God was never the in, the, the fulfill all goal of Uh, his interaction with the people it was simply a starting point and in some ways an ending point and that gets really confusing we'll talk about that a little bit later in his relationship with his people remember he interacted with uh abraham and with the descendants of the israelites or the antecedents of the israelites i don't know what the opposite of descendants are Eh, is that right yeah that is right good job (laughs) That is ancestors. What a funny, easy word to know. Dealt with them long before any law existed. And this is one of Paul's major arguments at the beginning of Romans. He said, wait a second. You guys say you live by the law, yet Abraham didn't have a law. There was no law in existence other than the law of various societies and cultures. And yet somehow he was still in a right relationship of faith with me. And so faith is the thing that trumps ultimately the law because the law is impossible for any of us to accomplish. In any form, law is impossible for us to accomplish fully. It simply is uh, an instrument for our protection and ultimately condemns us, and we'll talk about that. But God's way is not law. I have heard too many preachers, and one is too many, who talk about Christianity as a set of rules. And while you have to have law and rules in any organization, any societal structure to exist and to be, you know, to work, even anarchy, in in an ironic twist, has its own rules, okay? God's way is not simply a set of rules or laws for us to accomplish. God's way is life in the Spirit. The law, as Paul says in the beginning of Romans, does not give life. Obeying the law will not lead you into a good life. Not if it's the legal law, obviously. Cultural law, religious law, natural law. It will not provide for you the very things that you want from your own life. Paul talks about this later on. It does not lead to human thriving It may lead to stable societies and decent societies, but in no way does law lead to human thriving, the stuff that God expects and enables us to do only through the Spirit. So it may protect us sometimes, but that's about it. When I first started teaching uh, sociology at um, Richland College, I uh, happened to steal a wonderful idea from another teacher who taught me some things. And he would always start his history class out with reading the line from the Declaration of Independence, you know, uh, the whole all men were created equal, image a guy, you know, you know, life, property, pursuit of happiness. I can never remember. There's a different version. It's life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness in the version that came down to us. And the entire first two classes is just my students discussing what do you think they meant? And... More than what do you think they meant, what authority did they have to make such a grand claim? And it doesn't take long to read through the Declaration of Independence and realize just how high and lofty the ideas are and how few people these ideas even applied to, right? And yet, the vision is grand. All people created equal in God's image can pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and yet, when you really get down to it, the conversation always comes down to the idea that it was rich, white, straight, uh, uh, men who had land, and, you know, that's really all this high and lofty idea applied to. And what authority did they even have for that? Was their vision to change that later on? Was it not? These are all really interesting questions uh, that the class goes through. But it's an exercise, and one of the major exercises... Uh, of our semester because it lays the foundation for the idea that law always over promises and under delivers okay and that's exactly what paul's talking about at the beginning of romans the law will always tell you this is the way to do things this and this is what will happen if you do life liberty and pursuit of happiness but always under delivers those very things happening in a person's life because at best, the law just simply protects, maybe keeps us from dying. Some people might give some people a sort of liberty, but not really to the fullest extent of what that is. So the law always uh, overpromises and underdelivers. Well, why is that? Is there something wrong with the law itself? Paul would say, no, not at all. The law is good. God's going to judge us based on his law, it's a good thing. As Jesus would say, not one little piece of it is going to be taken away. The problem is not with the law itself, all right? The reason that the law is bad is because we simply cannot follow it and we pick and choose what laws most work in our interest. Or we talk a lot about laws, okay? We hear but don't do anything about them, as Paul will say in Romans 2. You know the law, you've heard it a lot, but you don't follow it even a little bit, okay? And so there's nothing good about knowing. And in politics, if there's one thing I can say from the very beginning, it's that exact same idea. Most of us think because we know certain things, okay, we're better than others who don't, But in reality, when it comes down to doing any of those things that we know, we're not empowered by the law to do any of them. We feel empowered to just talk about it all day long, as if we're actually doing anything of significance. But all that is is just a useless conversation, as James would say and as Peter would say. A frivolous conversation over what we know and not actually what we're doing. So the title of this sermon is Lawbreakers Lose. Everybody who is a human breaks the law in a variety of ways, and as a result are condemned where they stand. And sure, there are some people who are better at obeying the law or really pretending like they obey the law, or it's easier for them to obey the law because the laws were sort of written for them. But lawbreakers ultimately lose. What Paul is saying in Romans 1 is their lives get worse and worse as the law has no power to save them, only condemn them. And throughout the New Testament, you're going to see Paul say over and over again, the law is only good for you in that it condemns you and tells you what's wrong because you do not have the ability to fulfill it. And now that's the bad news of Romans 1. The good news throughout the rest of Romans is that God has basically said, I'm going to put a spirit inside of you that not only fulfills the requirements of the law, justifies you as having obeyed the law in my sight, and enables you to move past all of these simple and small laws that the rest of society is obsessed with, to a thriving and full life. A life where you can actually do what it is that you've been talking about doing all this time. A life that actually promises exactly, or excuse me, delivers exactly what it promises. This is the fundamental good news in Romans that Paul is giving us, is that none of us can be good or right or okay if we just follow the various laws that apply to us. Again, I, I think many of you, you still probably hear me saying law and you think legal, like you're like, yeah, I mean, I go only five over the speed limit, I'm not that bad of a person. Like a Nobody actually says they followed the speed limit, right? It's just five over, like there's something in that range. And even the law, you don't get that much uh, you know, money uh, for, I think it's like 100 bucks, you know? I mean, yeah, we all got 100 bucks, right? No, most of you are like, no, I don't have 100 bucks. Um, but the law, we break. God tells us he's going to justify us through our faith and uh, see us as, uh, as having already completed these rules, now, of course, what comes out of that is this argument that Paul is making. Well, wait, if God already sees us as having fulfilled the law and doing good, why don't we just not worry about following the law and just be spiritual people? Paul's like, oh my gosh, what are you, that's the opposite of what this should lead you to think to do. The whole idea is that God is putting a hundred on your paper before you filled it out. The goal is to help you fill the paper out so you can actually get the hundred. You not earned it. You got the grade, but you don't say, "Well, I got a hundred on the assignment, so I'll probably just go do other things, uh, you know, and turn it in blank." No, that's not how it works. That's a terrible analogy, but I, I never actually said it, and I wanted to say it just to float the idea out there. But uh, you like it a lot. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. I've got it. Get you know, one person uh, it connected with. So, those who have faith have been justified under the law and can move on from the mastery of these basic rules and laws that everybody else fights about and compares themselves on to the things that really matter most. Life, love, all of these things that actually matter. In my uh, ethics class and during my PhD studies, I had this one professor I really, really loved. He was a staunch, agnostic, and I just really loved him as a person, and I loved having conversations in class because his worldview was so different than mine. And I remember one in particular that I've mentioned to you guys before, and that's that he said, you know, I like Confucius a lot more than I like Jesus. And, you know, of course, he was just baiting us. You know, well, what do you mean? Well, he said, Confucius, long before Jesus came along, had this sort of anti-golden rule. It was don't do unto others what you wouldn't have them do unto you. And I think that's a whole lot better then do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Because it puts you in a situation where you're not worrying about doing things and getting into people's faces and into their worlds based on your subjective experience. You just don't do that stuff. It's a, it's a rule of subjectivity and a rule of minimums. It's like a speeding ticket, right? Uh, you get a speeding ticket, what's gonna happen? You're gonna totally change how great you are at driving? No, most of us drive good for like three or six months, for however long that deferred adjudication is, maybe a year, and then we're like, oh, okay, whole new year, I, I can speed again. Speeding ticket doesn't teach you how to respect people on the road. Having a law that says don't have you know, get a road rage, and I'm the worst at this, trust me, um, or don't go 50 isn't going to teach you anything positive or good about how to treat people on the road. Because the law is about don'ts. It's a negative way of looking at the world that only condemns you for when you break it and doesn't empower you to do anything better. I think I've belabored this point, so I'm just trying my best to give you what is uh, amounts to about the first four chapters of Romans uh, without trying to explain every single piece of this. Law, all of the laws we live by uh, will not do anything in regard to enabling us to live life in the way that God wants us to. It will simply only condemn us as to how far we've fallen short, but in a twist, as Paul talks about, most of us don't even feel condemned by the law. We just simply ignore it, create ourselves another set of laws that for whatever reason, we're pretty successful at achieving, and then feel really good about ourselves. This is politics. We have a set of ideas that we adhere to. And again, it's not necessarily doing, but we know them and feel really good that we happen to know those really important rules and feel really bad that all these other ignorant people don't. We build a law system for ourselves, one that makes us feel good. We live apart from God's law, which is ultimately about faith, Uh, and uh, in accordance with our own way of looking at the world. And this does nothing really to help us thrive, because there's no need to thrive in a situation where we've already decided we're thriving, in accordance with the law. So, I've been using the word law, what do I mean? Okay, a couple things, principles that we've got. Ethics, norms, they can be codified or not, it doesn't really matter. They're simply rules by which we think are important enough for us to follow. All right, And one of the things we'll talk about next week when we talk about morality and the majority is most of us Christians say we live in accordance with God's law, life through the Spirit. But in reality, we find most of our goodness and the various laws apart from God that we follow each day and every day the various associations we're a part of, the various things that we do that are good, and we get and gain our identity through those things that we uh, already do and accomplish. It is the exact problem that Jesus in Matthew 5 says, you guys have nullified the important commands of God so that you can tithe mint and dill and cumin and all these other things that smell good, um, and you've completely missed the bigger part of the law, which was justice and mercy. Ring a bell? Every prophet in the Old Testament says the exact same thing. Your entire society is obsessed with its own law system, which has virtually no connection to the law of God through faith. It's its own deal. Is some of it good? Absolutely it's good, we can argue all day long that the Jewish system of law was better than any of the ancient Near East cultural law systems at the time. And yet it still, still failed to produce good character in the people of Israel. Because it was law. It, it only condemned them. So I want to focus on three things here and then um, I'll be done. And I'm going to try to apply these three laws to the issue that Romans 1 does, and that is regarding sexuality. Sexuality is kind of an easy target uh, for this um, illustration simply because sexuality just has in it this sort of natural basis that a lot of us, I think, can kind of understand or at least attempt to understand. And while Christians have mistakenly I think, uh, placed sexual sin and sexual issues at the highest pinnacle of all sin, the scripture seems to routinely do the opposite and place sexual sin somewhere a little bit more along the lines of you're degrading your body, but eventually these things are gonna lead to worse sin, which has to do with using and abusing other people. Now, I might said that, some of you are like, well, I don't know about that, but I think that's what Paul's doing exactly here in Romans 1. So I'm gonna use sexuality because it's an easy target to explain these, uh, these types of laws that I think we adhere to today. All right, the first one is natural law. Now, there's a whole long history of natural law, particularly Catholicism, uh, you know, the philosophers looking at nature and trying to uh, extract from it certain laws about how to behave. Now, listen, I'm all a big fan of natural law, okay? Sounds pretty good. But again, it's just one failed system among others. Paul here in sexuality uses an interesting term when he talks about women and men committing acts that are unnatural, all right? And most of us look at these as a condemnation of homosexuality only. It's very weird how Romans reads like, well, first, Romans 1, I think the only thing I can really remember is that sinners were supposed to know God because of the stars, and anybody who's gay is really bad. And that's pretty much what Christians take away from Romans, unfortunately. Because first, in Romans, Paul talks about general sexual impurity and sets up the bar for this as a degrading of our bodies. And goes further to say, even women, and of course the even women part of this is a little bit tricky because there's really no uh, known recorded historical cases of lesbian acts in the Roman world. Now, there's a a number of reasons for this. Is that because there were no lesbians in the Roman world? I doubt it. It's probably because, obviously, we don't write much history about women back in the Roman times. Uh, Also, for two passive partners in a sexual relationship to be uh, interested in each other, no one is really going to be that interested. It's two passive partners. Sexuality in Rome is all about dominance and passivity and meeting the two. Okay. So the fact that he says even... You know, exchange unnatural relationships with each other. Number one, this isn't even clear what this means. Uh, if you'll read the message, uh, Eugene Peterson talks about it from the perspective of gender roles. If you read the NRSV, it's really unclear because it just says they're doing unnatural things. I don't know what that means. And NIV likes to, to paint a picture of, well, this is lesbian acts, Okay. Uh, so you've got a, a wide variety of here of things that are actually going on. The next says, that in the same way men exchanged unnatural relationships, this is a little bit more clear, and of course would have been a lot more common in, in Roman history. Okay. Uh, again, though, this is not two men marrying each other and living a monogamous relationship. That just wasn't heard of. Okay. Again, because that's two dominant partners in a relationship. Men could have sex with other men, primarily slaves, prostitutes, uh, and, and, and their sexuality would never be called into question. They were not gay men. They were simply uh, um, asserting their dominant position over a passive male, which, yeah, as it turns out, used, you know, generally were younger people. But I don't know if that's so weird and strange to you. Generally, sexuality is uh, directed towards the younger you are, right? And so this was a pretty common thing. Uh, in their society, this was not some like small thing that a few philosophers engaged in. This was a very common practice, all right. And Paul is certainly using that, that relationship, that lustful relationship of dominant and passivity, as a, uh, a, a calling into question these natural relationships that should exist, uh, and uh, and that this shouldn't be uh, uh, this should be a sign among many other things. And we ignore the list at the bottom of Romans one, which is much fuller in terms of sin, and seems to be a progression, that here is what bad really looks like. Slanderous, arrogant, and all the list of other things. And somehow just focus on this pinpoint example. I thought I want to approach this uh, from a natural law perspective. And I've heard this argument so many times, and it just really kind of makes me laugh a little bit as well. There are plenty of uh, both polygamous relationships in nature, and uh, uh, gay, same sex, well, I'll just put heterosexual relationships in nature. So it's not really that weird, okay? I've heard this argument multiple times. It's a very strange argument, right? When you start comparing yourselves to animals and their behavior. Because, you know, I grew up loving koalas, loving them, right? Still in my house, I kid you not, I have two koalas. One's a little hand puppet koala, it's about this size. And the other one is a little koala, which has my PhD graduation hat on it. Notice how I've mentioned I have a PhD twice in this uh, uh, sermon without, you know, really, yeah. And he's got these little uh, hands that have Velcro, and he's just kind of hanging around, uh, watching out for things. The cats really get a little creeped out of him sometimes every now and again, fight him. But koalas eat their own poop, man. (laughs) Like, love to eat their poop. I don't know about you, but we've got to be really careful on the slippery slope of comparing ourselves to the natural world and expecting that our behavior should somehow look like it. After all, for those of us who believe that we're made in the image of God, not animals, we're at least sort of like not just a higher life form, but actually been given something directly by God that other animals haven't. Okay? Sharks. Oh, don't get me started on sharks, man. Sharks are really interesting. Some shark species have two babies, and one eats the other baby, and that's how it survives. kind of reminds me of that line in The Office where Dwight, you know, reabsorbs uh, the, uh, his brother or whatever, and that's how he got his power. <laughs> okay. So the point is, we've got to be very careful about looking at Paul's arguments here as being, uh, well, it's unnatural, so you shouldn't do it. Okay, yeah, right, the natural world has a lot of really weird stuff, Okay. Uh, I remember as a kid, uh, one of my Catholic neighbors telling me uh, that animals, and I've, I've used this example too, used to be able to talk before, they, before Adam and Eve sinned. And I was so mad at Adam and Eve for sinning, right? Because like, dang. But then as I got older, I realized, wait a second, they sinned because that animal talked, man. Well, it doesn't even make any sense now. If animals talk to us, man. We'd be sinning even more. My dog would be like, go bite that guy. <laughs> Clayton comes over the house, Asher's like, go bite that guy right now. He looks like someone who be bit. My dog Asher, my favorite dog, loves to bite Clayton Cummings. He's done it two times now. He's never bitten anybody else. It's probably because Clayton's a liberal and Asher's and Asher's pretty conservative, you know. But don't worry, don't worry. You know, We're letting him uh, listen to these sermon series, so hopefully he'll uh, bounce himself out a little bit. But yeah, we've got to be really careful with this whole idea of natural law, guys. We're comparing apples to oranges. And, uh, you know, this has been one of my problems with intelligent design along the way, and I'm sorry for those of you who really like the intelligent design movement, but guys, let's be honest, a lot of nature doesn't look very intelligently designed, and if you can't address that, you've got you to gotta at least address it. If you're going to make arguments with scientists who aren't, don't believe by de facto that the world was created by intelligent design, a lot of it looks unintelligent. And there are Christian arguments for that in terms of the fall. And I'm hoping one day we'll be able to live with animals, wild animals, uh, and feed them. And they won't eat each other. And they won't eat us. And it'll be a wonderful existence. And maybe they can talk, but I doubt that part of it. All right? I have a feral cat that I've had for eight years now. It took me three years to pet him once. This year, two months ago, I kissed him on his head. That was pretty awesome. Awesome. It's a feral cat, man. I'm the only guy that kissed that cat on his head, and he is a really awesome cat, all right? But, you know, maybe that gives me a little taste of heaven. I don't know. (laughs) But what we've got now is not the best system, and we've got to be careful with pulling examples from nature. Legal law. Guys, nothing in our law is going to tell you how to love and respect another human being. It'll tell you how to protect, and it'll tell you about minimums, things you just absolutely have to do, but you will not learn love and respect from our laws. It's still very possible to be a manipulative and abusive person, okay, and obey the law. God's law teaches us those things, and this appeal to common ethics and all these other things, which I think in part are very helpful, still often lack the authority of anything other than a cultural trend where we've decided this means, this symbolizes respecting and loving someone. You've never, uh, you know, uh, been accused of sexual harassment or sexual assault. That doesn't mean you know how to love and respect anybody, Good for you. Uh, I think that's probably pretty uh, common and normal, even though it doesn't seem so anymore in our political offices. It doesn't teach us how to love and respect. And even worse, it ultimately doesn't bring us beyond just individual responsibility for others. Most of the law is aimed at you as an individual not doing certain things. One of the things that's really super interesting about Romans is it switches back and forth often about individual commitment, to morality and all these things, but then corporate, corporate, excuse me, commitment to morality and for each other. We look at a society today that is largely disintegrated in its social ties. And I don't say that too often to say all oh, things are so bad because I think a lot of things are very good in our society and are progressive, and I'm not one of those back to the 50s or something, like as if that was a better time period for people. Hello? But we very much, in, in a lot of ways, have, have disintegrated our social ties. We just don't spend much time around people who are very different from us anymore. Maybe the college campus, you guys get an opportunity for that. Certainly, hopefully in a Christian ministry you would. But, you know, we've got these little bubbles of people who all believe the same, or at least pretend they do, all hanging out with each other and not spending much time. There's no corporate responsibility for discussing important civic things, for talking with people who you don't know very well, for interacting with other people. Our best idea of that is I'm going to go to Europe for one week and pretend like I know about Europeans. I'm going to go to Costa Rica and pretty much stay, you know, in Sandals Resort and really understand the Latino lifestyle, that's not going to work. All right? Because at the, at the end of the day, most of us you know, are accused, we, we can be accused of gaslighting in all of our relationships. We're constantly trying to take someone else's reality and twist it and turn it so it's our reality we're applying to them. At our best. And also, gaslighting is a really interesting has a really interesting etymology. Do you guys know the history of that? It was like a play in the 1930s where literally there was this guy who murdered this woman and was trying to find her jewels in the attic where her body was. So he would turn down the lights real low, okay? Which doesn't make any sense. I think he was just wa- wanting no one to see him in the, up in the attic or whatever. And then when he came downstairs, his wife would be like, hey, did you see the lights dimming? And he was like, no, no, it never happened. It's just something that you're imagining. That is literally the uh, uh, etymology of gaslighting. And if you don't know much about gaslighting, uh, come to my house. I'll do it plenty to you. Um, (laughs) Move in as a roommate. Uh, It'll happen. All right, and then the third one here, which I think is the one that we most get into trouble with, and that's just the cultural and religious law. Human rules, right? And these rules are even more difficult. Now, I don't want to uh, uh, suggest to you that these are like three separate things. There's no way. There are tons of overlap. But it's at the cultural and religious level where we most, most look to how we're fulfilling a certain set of rules or laws to find our identity. And this cultural thing can be as an American, it can be as a white person, as a black person, it can be as a woman, it can be as someone who has same-sex attraction, whatever, we can get into an environment where we have all of these laws that are aimed at us uh, sort of feeling good and decent about who we are. And if there's one message from Romans here at the very beginning, which makes it really hard to read, it's that none of us are good and that none of us have an excuse for not being good. And this is still one of the most scandalous claims of Christianity in our society, because we just don't believe it as Americans. There's no way. Most of us are good. We're good people. Come on. We're Americans. We're good. And Paul says, no, and not only are you not good, but you have no excuse for not being good. And if you can't get there in Christianity, you'll never be able to take the next step. If you really can't see what Paul sees in Romans 6 as apart from Christ being the worst of sinners, this man who seems better than all of us on his worst day, then you really won't be able to understand the need for faith that Paul is talking about. We create our own laws and we break them and we have no excuse. So, this one I just want to quickly say, and this is a little bit confusing, uh, but I'm just going to say it and not talk a whole lot about it because I'm going to spend more time on it next week. What's right? I mean, really, what's right? Okay, we've got the is right, which most of us start with. Okay, there's an old uh, Indian uh, philosophical metaphor, which is kind of a weird one, but basically, you know, these guys, they've never seen an elephant before, it's at night. And apparently they're blind too, which is tough. I guess the night thing probably doesn't really matter now that I think about it. I uh, probably just added that to make sense of it before I remembered that they were blind. Anyway, um, they go up to this elephant and they start kind of touching uh, you know, parts of this elephant, right? And they're describing what this new creature is like. And so, of course, each one of them has a part of the elephant that they're describing, and they're describing one piece, another person's describing another, and everyone's just arguing with each other because, hey, you know, Uh, that's not what I'm feeling. One's a tusk, one's a trunk, one's a leg. Hopefully there's no other parts uh, that people are touching. Uh, And uh, they're describing for them what their reality is, right? And of course, this has been used to, um, I think, advocate the idea that we all have our own opinions. Of course, people who uh, think of relative truth as kind of a silly idea recognize that, yeah, maybe you have your own opinion, but there's still an elephant there, and he does exist, apart from your understanding of what he looks like in, or uh, excuse me, what he feels like, so there's still that kind of reality. But I don't wanna to get too much into objective reality or not. I just wanna say, most of us present the next things I'm gonna say as is right, what seems right. I am amazed, and let me just say one thing real quick. I am kind of a millennial, I'm sort of like on the edge, so sometimes I, I pretend like I am and sometimes I don't, but millennials, I think, have a, a whole laundry list of wonderful attributes they're more race conscious, they're more uh, just in general conscious about weaker minority people in our society, about all kinds of things. But one of the real blind uh, sort of spots for a lot of millennials, at least in my mind, okay, is most of us have so internalized the idea of rightness and morality and for a good reason. Some of us are just so tired of absolute truths or relative truths being presented as absolutes. We don't trust institutions. We don't trust government. We don't trust someone telling us what's right. But most of us have internalized so much what's right that it takes nothing more than me thinking in my mind, well, based on my experience, this is right, so I'm going to do it. And it just kills us. We just don't have very many life skills, some of us. We make terrible decisions and then wonder why that didn't turn out right. <laughs> it's almost like we have to reinvent the wheel. You know, We have to go out and do everything bad because we don't trust that anybody who said anything about all those bad things we ought not do will right, at least in part, with what they were saying. And so what seems right to us is often the extent of the authority that we have, and, uh, and that's a scary world to live in. I don't think that necessarily makes us less moral, uh, but I think it makes uh, talking about morality very, very difficult. Because again, we don't do what we, we, we say. We may think that morality is just sort of like, well, whatever I feel, but most of us don't treat each other like that on a daily basis. So what seems right? What most people think. That seems to work. What some people think. We don't want to leave anybody out if they have an idea of what's right. We ought to probably at least just appease them. What used to be right? Okay, we get older people generally in the whole used-to-be-right crowd, right? Because somehow used-to-be means that probably we right tradition. That's a good uh, excuse for being right. In other places is right. Over and over and over again. All these things. Where do we determine ultimately what's right? Well, our law system ultimately guides us. And our laws, unfortunately, their authority is simply seems, some people think, used to be. In other places... But this idea of an authoritative "what is right" is lacking from most of our law systems. What fundamentally is right, and we don't ask that self, uh, uh, we don't ask ourselves that question because it's sort of high and lofty. So I'm going to end with that because I'm going to talk about that next week and answer that question in some part. Uh, how do we determine what is right, right uh, as people of uh, the gospel? I want to leave you with two quotes before I end, okay? Uh, and I think they're just great quotes. I think you could kind of think about them and uh, ponder them this next week, and, and you probably have some great conversation just on these quotes. The first one is by an early um, uh, colonizer, which I guess that's kind of a bad word now, um, a Quaker guy, and he just said, People are more afraid of the laws of man than God because their punishment seems to be nearest. People are more afraid of the laws of men than God because their punishment seems to be, and I love how he puts seems to be because it's not nearest, but it seems to be nearest. And Paul's gonna pick up on that idea that you know it's much easier for us to obey a law when we think, well, we're not gonna get any immediate punishment for it. Uh, but people are more afraid of the laws of men than God because their punishment seems to be nearest. And then another one which I really love, um, laws are like cobwebs. Oh, and this is by Jonathan Swift. And you know, modest proposal, global travels, all that good stuff. Laws are like cobwebs which may catch small flies, but let wasps and hornets break through. Ooh, that's good. Laws are like cobwebs which may catch small flies, but let wasps and thornets break through. It's really the whole idea of you strain out the gnat and swallow the camel. It's really the, kind of the same, uh, you know, um, criticism of, of our law systems. All right, I'm going to say prayer, and then we're going to take, uh, take communion. But hopefully, uh, you can kind of unpack this. I know it's a little bit heady. It's the first sermon, and it's Romans, and so I'm sorry. I, I tr- I'll try my best uh, next week um, to, to really break this down specifically. The ne- uh, uh, issue uh, next week is we'll talk about the whole idea of the moral majority, what that means. Many of you might not have heard that idea, but how do we think about morality in the face of a majority or minority of people believing certain things. And then from there, we'll talk about criminal justice system, uh, gerrymandering. I mean, again, look at the list, please, and take a, a moment to think about them, study up on it, or ask any questions uh, you may have. For those of you who haven't taken communion with us, uh, it's pretty simple. Around here, you're just going to take a piece of bread, dip it in the uh, juice if you're a Christian, believer, and you want to participate with uh, us in this uh, Uh, act of remembering Jesus for for what he did, the life that he lived, uh, and how he lives with us continually, we invite you to do that with us. and then uh, We're loud and like to celebrate, and and we're celebrating because this is really a positive time for us. But if it uh, is your custom to sit and think, or to uh, ponder on what that sacrifice means for you individually, you're welcome to just sit still and kind of think about that and get up. No pressure. Lord God, thank you for uh, the life that you give us through your spirit. Spirit life is hard. It's so much easier to have a clear rule and guideline that we can check off or say we failed in and be done with it and move on. But life in the spirit is hard, God. It's so much hard. The, the standard is perfection. It's so much higher. The things that you ask of us are things that we don't want to do. We would rather just sit back and not do other things. God, help us to grow out of an immature understanding of faith that's based in the law and based in don'ts, to live lives of powerful yes in the face of uh, difficult situations, in the face of uh, making decisions that we don't want to make and that no one's technically saying is a bad decision. Help us do what's right in the eyes of the Spirit. Guide us, Lord, as we talk about um, these difficult issues in our nation and the nations all around the globe so that we can be a people who reflect your goodness in politics and in political conversations and in our beliefs, Um, help us to treat each other with respect and dignity even in the face of disagreement, Um, to be quick to forgive and slow to be angry. We take this now Uh, just in memory of the kind of life Jesus led, in and out of various groups, with various different kinds of people who had a variety of beliefs about the world around them. And yet somehow, through your spirit, he was able to interact with them, to love them, to speak truth and dignity in their lives. He didn't wall himself up in a little community of people who believed the same things he believed. He was available and accessible, saw the people who no one else noticed, would rather invite injustice on himself than do injustice to anyone around him. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week, and you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.